We continue our series this morning, Facing Our Fears, and uh, we read a, a fairly familiar story. This is kind of on the backside of the big event. We'll talk about the big event here in just a few moments. But let's begin reading in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1, and Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, so let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose. Notice that when he saw that, we'll talk about that in a moment, he arose and he ran for his life and he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left a servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and he sat down under a broom, and I think some translations probably say a juniper tree, uh, and he prayed that he might die and said, it is enough now, Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. As he lay and slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he rose and ate and drank, and he went in his strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave, and he spent the night in that place, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've killed your prophets with a sword, and I am alone left, and they seek to take my life. And he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and, before, and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And uh, after that, the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in an earthquake. And then after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, there was the still small voice. Verse 13, so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out, went out and he stood in the entrance of the cave and suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword and I alone am left and they seek to take my life. The Lord said to him, go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Meholah, you shall anoint his prophet in your place. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword, verse 17, of Haziel, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. And then our kind of theme verse from Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he found, heard me, and he delivered me from all of my fears. Thank you, Father, for delivering us from all of our fears as we seek you. And I know, Lord, that there are those in this room today that are battling with fear as things that they expected have just blown up. Things that they had hoped for, things that they longed for did not turn out the way that they thought, and they are afraid to face those expectations that have just exploded before their eyes. And I pray, God, that you would speak to us through the life of Elijah today and teach us how to deal with and face the fear of those exploded unfulfilled expectations. 
Father, I pray that right now you would supernaturally captivate the attention of everyone in this room. Pray, Lord, that we would understand the holiness of this moment as we break the bread of life. We would understand that we have moved into the holiest place because we are hearing the word of the Lord. And I pray, God, that in my weakness, your strength would be made perfect, that you would anoint me, not because I've earned it or deserve it, but because without your anointing, I cannot communicate the truth that you want us to hear today. So, God, I pray that you would just speak through me. Let me be a vessel very willing and open to allowing you to speak through me with clarity, with boldness, and authority. And may the word of the Lord change our hearts and lives today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you will uh, be familiar with this name. Some of you maybe not. Um, it was a few years back that she was a pretty popular recording artist and then also one of the co-hosts for the 700 Club, Sheila Walsh. And, uh, but she writes this. I just want you to read it. She says this, our paradigm of what Christian life is supposed to be hugely affects whether we become bitter or not. So many of the people I work with are dealing with disappointments, disappointment with themselves. I sure understand that. Disappointment with other people and disappointment with God because he doesn't do what we think he is going to do. She says, I got one of the most interesting letters at the 700 Club from a young woman in her mid-20s who had cancer and MS. And she said, sometimes I watch your program and I'm helped. Sometimes I want to take my shoe off and throw it through the screen. I was so fascinated, Sheila Walsh said, by her honesty. I called her. We became friends. And one day she said, one of the things I hate about what you do is you always present people whose marriages get fixed in 10 minutes, people who get healed, people who have the nice packaged answers. She said, what people like me who are dying, what about people like me who are dying but still love God? What about people who take very few steps, but every step leaves a big impression in the snow because it costs every ounce of strength they have left? Sheila Walsh said, she changed my perspective. Christianity is not this nice, everything going to work out okay attitude. We think of Christ at the tomb of Lazarus. He wept because it wasn't supposed to be like this. He had spoken this beautiful world into existence, and yet it was broken. It was so messed up. I think one of his greatest gifts, one of the greatest gifts we can give is just a dose of reality. The life down here is sometimes disappointing. And that God doesn't always give us the answers, but he always gives us himself. It's a powerful, powerful word. Tony Snow was the former press secretary for President George W. Bush. And during his battle with cancer, which was off and on since 2005, he was asked what spiritual lessons he has learned from the battle. And this is what Tony Snow replied, he said, we want lives of simple, predictable ease, smooth, even trails as far as the eye can see. But God likes to go off-road. Sometimes we don't expect what happens, do we? God goes off-road and kind of messes up our expectations. Today I want to talk about a story of exploded expectations. 
that nearly wrecked one of the great men of God, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, whose name was Elijah. And I think you know probably pretty well the story of Elijah. It's an important story for us because Elijah was not some haloed angel that was completely unlike us. The Bible actually says of Elijah, he was a man with a nature just like ours. So we're talking about a man who had the same feelings, the same emotions, the same struggles that we have. Let me just give you real quickly the Elijah narrative, if I could. It's in chapter 17 through 19. I'm going to go through this very quickly, and uh, we'll put most of the little bullet points on the screen. But Elijah was a prophet, as you know, to Israel, which was the northern tier of what had become a divided kingdom. The north was Israel, the south was Judah. But he was a prophet of the northern Israel during the reign of King Ahab, who was the most pagan, most wicked king that Israel had. To make matters worse, uh, Israel had given in to the pagan idol, the god of Baal, and they had begun themselves serving um, Baal. Because of their idolatry, God had to judge them, and so God sent a drought. That drought eventually led to a famine, and both the drought and the famine was a prophetic announcement that was made by Elijah. So when you announce something like that, you get the blame, and certainly Elijah did. Because of that announcement and because Ahab hated him and Jezebel hated him, he had to flee, and he fled to the brook called Cherith. And there God fed him, watered him with water from the brook. God commanded the ravens to come, and they fed Elijah, and they cared for him during this time of famine. We get to 1 Kings chapter 18, and by the way, you know, we put that on the screen as well. He was also fed by the widow of Zarethath and had a great miracle with her son there. But God provided for Elijah all throughout that time. Chapter 18, three years after he had told Elijah to tell Ahab um, that there was a drought, God said, now I want you to go to Ahab and tell him that there is rain coming. Finally, God is going to open up the heavens and he is going to pour out rain. The drought is going to end and the people are going to be fed. When Elijah made his way to Ahab, Ahab saw him coming, and here's what Ahab thought of Elijah. He called Elijah the troubler of Israel. He thought it was his fault because they had been under this drought for three years. So Elijah said to Ahab, God is going to send rain, but before that, I want to challenge you and the prophets of Baal to come to Mount Carmel and we will meet there and we will find out whose God is really the real God. How many remember this story? It's a great story. I'm going to tell it to you real quickly. But all of Israel was invited to the top of Mount Carmel. They got there with Elijah. He's the only prophet of God that's there. There's 450 prophets of Baal. And Elijah says to Israel, you all need to make up your mind. In fact, he says, how long are you going to limp or halt between two opinions? Make up your mind. If God is God, serve him. If Baal is God, then you serve him. But make up your mind. So all of Israel is gathered on Mount Carmel, and they have this showdown on top of the mountain. 
Elijah defers, I guess they had a coin toss, I don't know, and he deferred to the prophets of Baal. Come on, laugh and work with me, folks. There was a coin toss. And so the prophets of Baal go first, and, and 450 of them, they prepare this altar, they put two bowls on the altar, they don't put any fire under it, and they begin to cry out to their God that he would consume the sacrifice with fire. That was the deal. Whosoever God responds by fire and consumes the sacrifice, he will be the real God. And they go on all morning long. It gets to noon and there's still nothing, and Elijah, of course, knows there's not going to be anything. And Elijah, who has a little bit of divine sarcasm in him, begins to kind of prod them a little bit and said, maybe you need to talk a little bit louder. Possibly Mr. Baal is on vacation, or maybe he is relieving himself in the restroom, or maybe he is taking a nap. Holler just a little bit louder and possibly he will hear, but still nothing. Finally, as we go into the middle of the afternoon, Elijah said, it's my turn. And he repairs the altar of the Lord. He places the sacrifice on the altar. He builds a trench around the altar. He tells them to douse the sacrifice with four barrels of water because he doesn't want him to think that there's some kind of trickery and fire underneath the altar. And he says, you know what? Four is not enough. How about four more barrels? And just for good measure, they threw on barrel number 9, 10, 11, and 12, and drenched the sacrifice. And then Elijah prayed 63 words, and fire consumed the sacrifice. The people fell on their faces, and they said, Yahweh, he is God. Elijah seized the prophets of Baal, and he took 450 of them out, and he slew them at the brook Kidron, and then he stood with his servant and he said, it's gonna rain soon, you keep an eye out for the clouds. And the servant goes out, says it's a clear day. We haven't had rain in three years, Elijah. There's not a cloud in the sky. He said, just keep looking, go back again. And finally he went back on the seventh time and he said, well, Elijah, probably not a big deal, probably not even worth wasting time, but there is this little cloud the size of a man's fist. I just said, that's all we need, hurry down, because there is the abundance of rain. And by the time they got to the bottom of the mountain, God had sent this storm, this rain, that healed the land. He so enlivened Elijah, Elijah actually outran Ahab and his chariot down to the bottom of the mountain as he ran in the power of the Lord. This, as you can imagine, was the high point for Elijah. What an amazing victory. I mean, fire comes down with just 63 words after these dudes have been praying all day long and nothing, and your sacrifice was consumed by 12 barrels of water. And then God gives you the strength to, to kill the false prophets of Baal. And then you have the energy to outrun Ahab's chariot to the bottom of the mountain. He is on cloud nine. Surely things will change now. Surely after all of that, Israel is going to turn back to God and they're going to follow him. No, no more of this Baal stuff. They're going to worship Yahweh and Elijah's thinking they're going to respect me again as the prophet of the Lord. He had all of these expectations that things were going to change, but they were not to be. His expectations were exploded. Jezebel said, I'm going to get you. I'm going to kill you. What you did to the prophets of Baal, I'm going to make sure that it's done to you. And no one seemed to care. 
No one invited Elijah to stay with them. No one said, Elijah, we're on your side. No one took up arms to defend him. His expectations did not get fulfilled. And so now we get to chapter 19. His expectations have been exploded and he runs for his life. Let's look first of all at the flight of exploded expectations. Let me read these verses one more time to you real quickly. So after all of that, Ahab told Jezebel what Elijah had done and how he executed the prophets. And she sent a messenger saying, let the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So when he saw that, he arose and he ran for his life. And he went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey in the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under the juniper tree, and he prayed that he might die. He said, it's enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my father's. And as he lay and slept under a broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, get up and eat. And he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water, so he ate and drank. And he lay down, and again, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat. Journey is too great for you. So he rose, ate, and drank, and he went in the power or the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights as far as Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, some translations say in verse 3 of chapter 19 that he feared. It's actually the same word in Hebrew. If you didn't know, Hebrew did not have any vowels. It only had consonants. And so later on, the scribes had to go in and put the vowels in. It had the very same consonants, the word fear, as the word saw. The word saw is ra'ah. The word fear has the very same consonants. But the New King James, I think, accurately portrays what happened. It wasn't when he feared, it was when he saw. When he saw what Jezebel was going to do and he saw that no one was going to happen. I think that's accurate. I asked myself, could he really have been afraid? Think about this for just a moment. He challenged Ahab. He killed 450 prophets of Baal. He outran the chariot from power and boldness to fear and panic. Really, I'm not so sure. I don't think he was afraid for his life. As a matter of fact, later he will say, just take my life. It wasn't that he was afraid to die. As a matter of fact, he, if all he wanted was protection, he only needed to step into the land of Judah. He did not need to go nearly as far as Beersheba. Once he stepped into Ju Ju Judah, King Jehoshaphat would have cared for him and given him refuge. But he went much further than necessary. Let's put the map on the screen if we can. And I don't know how well you can see that. But if you look up on the left side in bold letters, about two-thirds of the way up, Mount Carmel is where the showdown took place. Now, if you look at Mount Carmel and you go all the way down all the way down to the right where you see Elijah's hill, and then you keep going down almost to the bottom. This is where he lands, Beersheba. That's much further than he needed to go. See it all the way down in the left corner, Beersheba, is where he ultimately landed. Brooke Cherith is off to the right on the right side, but he made his way all the way down to Beersheba, not because he needed to go that far to be protected, but because he was trying to get as far away as he could from his exploded expectations. I would suggest to you, look at me for just a moment, he was not afraid of death. Because again, he asked God later to take his life. His flight was not for fear of Jezebel. Look at me, it was for fear 
of disappointment, exploded expectations. After all of that, things weren't going to work out the way he thought. After that grand pronouncement, after that fire from heaven, after that mad sprint to the bottom of the mountain, things still weren't going to work out. And so from Bathsheba, he went all the way to Mount Horeb. And there he entered a cave, and we read these words. Spent the night in that place, and God came and spoke to him and said, what are you doing, Elijah? And I think it was with that tone of voice, by the way, just so you know. I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts, Elijah said. I've, I, Israel has forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They killed your prophets. And I'm the only one left. And they want to take my life. God said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And so the Lord passed by and there was a great and strong wind. Broke the rocks. But God wasn't in the wind. You know the story. And there was an earthquake. God wasn't in the earthquake. Then there was a fire. God wasn't in the fire. And then... Elijah heard a still small voice. He wraps his face in the mantle and he goes out and he stands by the entrance of the cave. And again, God said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous. He repeats the same thing. I've stood up for you when nobody else would. And now they're trying to take my life and nobody seems to care. And the Lord said, go return your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Haziel and anoint Jehu and anoint Elisha as a prophet in your place. You see what happened? Look at me for just a moment. His expectations, what he thought was going to happen when all of that transpired, had just blown up. It didn't work out like he had thought. Amy Carmichael says, Everywhere the perpetual endeavor of the enemy of souls is discouragement. If he can get the soul under the weather, he wins. It's not really what we go through that matters, it's what we go under that breaks us. We can bear anything if we can only be kept inwardly victorious. If God can make his birds to whistle in drenched and stormy darkness, if he can make his butterflies able to bear up under rain, what can he not do for the heart that trusts him? We often run when we are discouraged, we often flee when our expectations are exploded. And that was the case with Elijah. So, so what, are, what are the causes? What is the cause of exploded expectations? What gets us to that point like Elijah when we run? Number one, when heightened spiritual experiences do not translate into perpetual spiritual highs, we can have our expectations exploded. You see, sometimes we experience God in a magnificent way. We feel him. And so when it's over and that doesn't continue, and we don't feel him like we did in that prayer meeting every single time, when we don't feel the goosebumps and the warm fuzzies and the spiritual highs, all of a sudden our expectations are exploded. And we find ourselves running away from the work of God because we don't feel like we did in that first moment. Down Carmel, down the mountain. He thought it was going to be that way the rest of the time, but when he got to the bottom of the mountain, the people were the same. No more warm fuzzies. 
He could have prayed 63 words again and there'd have been no fire from heaven. But when you begin to look at your heightened spiritual experiences and expect that to happen 24 seven, your expectations are going to be exploded and you're gonna flee. Secondly, not really secondly, but a little sub point, I want you to understand perpetual highs are not a promise of scripture. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 17, look at this, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord, for he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes. Look, heat does come, but its leaf will be green and will, he will not be anxious in the year of drought nor will cease from yielding fruit. Folks, look at me for just a moment. There will be times of heat. There will be times of spiritual drought. And if you are expecting this heightened spiritual experience all of the time, your expectations will be exploded and you will flee. That's why the psalmist said, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I walk through it, I will fear no evil because thou art with me. Secondly, we have... Uh, exploded expectations when those around us don't share the same spiritual passions as we do. Anybody ever been disappointed in the people around you that they don't, they don't love Jesus like you do? They're not as passionate about God as you are. They don't have the same vision you have. Elijah expected Israel to follow him. Now that the fire had fallen, surely they were gonna get in line and follow. Well, they had a brief moment when they fell on their faces, but then when they went right back to that same old lukewarmness. Elijah's expectations exploded, and he ran to Horeb. I can't tell you how many times in 37 years I've thought this would be the sermon that everybody is going to get it, and we are going to have revival. And I can't tell you how many times I was disappointed because it didn't happen that way. I mean, sometimes I just think I have really heard from God and this is gonna, gonna change everything. You know, I've told you before, every once in a while I think I'll send off a tweet and the world will change and the president will fall to his knees and, and, and you know, we have these expectations. We are sometimes disappointed and those expectations explode when people don't share the same passion that we share. Number three, uh, we have exploded expectations. This is really good. You may not like me when I'm done, but this is really good. When our hopeful expectations become demands of the heart. God, that's what I'm hoping for, and that's what I'm demanding. Look, look at me for just a moment. When what you hope for becomes a demand, it becomes an idol, and it will leave your expectations exploded. God, this is how I picture. This is how I see my ministry. This is how I see my church. This is how I see my role. God, that is what I'm hoping for. And God, in the name of Jesus, I'm demanding that. That has become an idol to me. And sometimes God lets our expectations explode because he doesn't, how many know God does not want us to have idols? Elijah was angry. To Israel, he wanted to say, you will serve Yahweh. You will follow with my passion. He was determined to make it happen. The showdown, the victory only fueled that determination. This is it, man. The fire fell. And now I'm going to get what I always expected. All of Israel is going to serve God and they're going to follow my leadership. 
But when the demand of his heart was not fulfilled, he crashed. Because the demand of the heart had become an idol. He personalized their rejection. They don't like me. Same thing Samuel did when Israel wanted a king. It's what we do. We, we have this demand. We expect things to happen the way we want them to expect, and they don't, and we personalize it. They've rejected me. Jesus already warned us that the world hates you. Keep in mind that it hated me first, Jesus said. A.W. Tozer, this is a kick in the gut, what A.W. Tozer says here. The labor of self-love is a heavy one indeed. Think for yourself whether much of your sorrow has not arisen from someone speaking slightingly of you. As long as you set yourself up as a little god to which you must be loyal, there will be those who will delight to offer affront to your idol. How then can you hope to have inward peace? The heart's fierce effort to protect itself from every slight, to shield its touchy honor from the bad opinion of friend and enemy will never let the mind have rest. That quote, by the way, was worth the cost of injuring today. That is good. I mean, we waste all of our energy trying to protect the little idol called myself. And our expectations are blown up. I need to move quickly. What are the signs that we're about to experience exploded expectations? Number one, you can realize it's around the corner when you develop a distorted view of your own importance. Look at Elijah. Here's what he says to God. Imagine saying this to God. I've been very jealous for the Lord. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They tore down your altars. They put your prophets to death with the sword. And God, I am the only one left. Talk about a distorted opinion of oneself. I'm the only one serving you. Secondly, when we gauge God's faithfulness based on our own expectations, Elijah was afraid and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. He went himself a day's journey into the wilderness and he came to the broom bush, sat under the tree and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. His expectations were revival. His expectations were everything was going to turn and it didn't work out that way. So apparently God had not been faithful. I'm no better than my father's. At the heart of what he was saying is, God, I expected more of you. I expected you would, I mean, God, I just, for three years, I hid out. I let ravens feed me. I didn't show my face in the community. And then I challenged 450 prophets of Baal, and I have greater faith than anybody in Israel's ever had. And then I kill 450 prophets with my bare hands. And here I am sitting under a tree. God, you apparently aren't as faithful as I thought you were. Just let me die. And thirdly, um, when we allow our exploded expectations to justify a critical spirit, I'm the only one left. No one else is serving you. Funny thing is, God tells him at the very end, by the way, Elijah, there are 7,000 others. But he waits till the end to tell him that. He's got this critical spirit. I have to read this, and then we're going to close. Um, Jeff Mannion wrote this. 
in the land between. The hearts drift toward complaint. Think about this. The heart drifts toward complaint as if by gravitational pull. After all, complaint seems to be a reasonable response to a sequence of disappointing events. Generally, you don't have to extend an invitation for complaint to show up. It arrives as an uninvited guest. You return home from yet another frustrating day to discover that complaint has moved into your guest room, unpacked its luggage, started a load of laundry, and is rooting through your fridge. How many know what we're talking about? Even as you seek to dislodge complaint, as you move its bags to the curb and change the lock, it crawls back through the guest room window. Complaint resists eviction. For we know it, complaint feels right because it's familiar. With every struggle, we become the Israelites murmuring in the desert. We miss the faith lessons. God desires to prepare us and build things into us, but we are hunkered down in our pattern of response. We need to wake up and notice what is happening. How do we evict that spirit of complaint? I've heard it said that bad movement pushes out good movement and good movement pushes out bad movement. We can discourage complaints residency in our lives by inviting another guest to move in with us. And that new guest is trust. We choose to trust in the face of deep disappointment. Complaint has less space to maneuver. While attempting to unpack for an extended stay, it discovers that trust has taken all the drawers in the guest room and already occupies the empty seat at the table. Trust evicts complaint. Trust and complaint are incompatible roommates. One inevitably pushes the other one out. Stand with me real quickly if you would. Actually, I don't care how quickly you stand, but just stand. (laughs) Don't hurt yourself standing quickly, all right? I'm going to wrap this up, but I need you to listen. I'm, I've still got some sermon to preach, and I'm going I'm to preach it while you're standing. And while people are peering in, wanting to get in, think about this. So he goes and he hides in a cave, cave of exploded expectations. Cave is a good place to hide, but it's a terrible place to be found by God. It's also a terrible place to be in an earthquake. Listen to God's words. I love this. Please get this. Maybe you won't get anything else, but this maybe will minister to you. Listen to God's word. He says to Elijah, what are you doing here? He did not say, what are you doing there? Why? Because God had gone into the cave with him. If he'd have been outside saying, what are you doing here? It would have made no sense. What are you doing here? Because God... How many are thankful God moves into our caves with us when we're whining and pouting and complaining? His complaints and questions did not get answered until though he got out of the cave. Go and stand on the mountain, he said. So he wrapped himself in a mantle, the wind, the earthquake, the fire had already passed. Wrapped himself in a mantle, he listened, a still small voice. Remember what Tony Snow said, we want lives of simple, predictable ease, smooth, even trails, but God likes to go off roads, off road and out of the cave. B.J. Riken, president of Wheaton College at one time, says it's well, in his weakness, anything more than a gentle God would have been too much for Elijah to bear. 
After all, he is the God of the wind, the earthquake, fire. Sometimes God's spirit is in the wind, the rushing and blowing about the earth. Sometimes God is in the earthquake, shaking the earth to show its power. Sometimes he's, like, he's in the fire as he was at Mount Carmel when lightning fell from heaven to consume his sacrifice. But there are times when the glory of God is too much for any human being to take. His power is a terrible reality. And sometimes we simply want to know that he is our friend. And that is what God revealed to Elijah. And after the fire, there was this whisper, a low whisper, a still small voice. And what did the voice say? Look, here's what the voice said. Go back where you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hesiod. When you get there, anoint Jehu. When you get there, anoint Elisha. In other words, Elijah, get out of the cave and get back to that world of exploded expectations. Some of you may be afraid to get back at it. You're hurt, you're disappointed. Your expectations have just blown up, but the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in your cave of discouragement and disappointment. Oh, I don't hear him speaking to me. That's because you're listening for a shout. You're looking for an earthquake. You're looking for a fire. You're looking for the wind. He's speaking to you in a still, small voice saying, get back at it because I'm with you. Nathaniel Hawthorne, and I will close, described happiness as a butterfly, which when pursued is always just beyond your grasp but which if you sit down quietly may alight upon you. And it's like that with the Holy Spirit. He's not seized, he's received. Sit down quietly, be still, and let God speak to you. Will you be still and know that he is God? you be still and know that your exploded expectations that have hurt you, disappointed you, and placed you in a cave need no longer do that to you. Would you listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit? Father, I thank you for your word today. Lord, help us to hear your voice. Put us back out there, God, where you've called us to be. We have some of us have gone into a cave. Our expectations have been exploded. We've been disappointed. But you are saying to us, get back at it. Go back in and start serving me. Your head's bowed for just a moment. How many would say that's where I'm at today, Pastor Kevin? Just pray for me right where I'm at. I, I've been disappointed. I've been hurt. My expectations have exploded. But I know God is calling me. God has called me back. How many would slip your hand up with me and say, that's where I'm at today. Let's worship the Lord in closing.